Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Rather than jumping back into our study of 1 Corinthians, I thought we'd do something a little different tonight. We're at a point in our study of 1 Corinthians that deserves sustained and careful attention, and I didn't want to start preaching a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 this week, and then we take a break next week for the picnic, and then come back to it in two weeks. So tonight, we're going to be in Hebrews 4, allowing us to have consecutive sermons on 1 Corinthians 7 after our church picnic next week. This past summer, I was given the opportunity to preach to our youth about Christ serving as our great high priest. This is a theme that I love from Scripture, especially because it ties together biblical and systematic theology. That is, it takes several key themes from the Old Testament and it unites them in a glorious way in the doctrine of Christ and in the doctrine of His atonement. But when I spoke to the youth, I wasn't able to say everything that I wanted to. And so tonight I thought I would take some of what I taught to them and expand it and hopefully show us Christ in a clear and simple way that encourages us in our faith. And so we're going to start with just a single verse in Hebrews 4 and use that as the launch pad to run really up and down the canon as we trace out these themes. Hebrews 4 and verse, not 4, let's see, I'm in the wrong book, I'm sorry, got busy talking. Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us therefore hold fast to our confession. Let me pray. Father in heaven, because of the faithful work of our high priest, we ask that you would speak, that you would work, that you would use your word to build us up, to make us holy, to make us more like our great high priest, make us faithful like he is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight I have three major points. First, we're going to look at the Old Testament priest, and then we're going to look at Jesus, and then we're going to look at ourselves. And so those are the three major points, the priest, Christ, and then us. And so before we examine what it means to have Christ as our great high priest, it would serve us to answer a more basic question. What is a priest? And to answer that, we need to go back, back to the Old Testament. We could go all the way back to the garden, but I think for our purposes tonight, we can go back to Exodus. Following the Passover plague in Egypt, where God killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but spared the firstborns of Israel because of the blood on their doorpost. God then claimed for himself the entire tribe of Levi. He chose the Levites for lifelong service to him. He made them to be priests for Israel. And thus God chose for himself who would be his priests, who would serve him and the people in the tabernacle and later the temple, and who would regulate the worship of God's people. But what else does the Old Testament teach us about this priestly office? Well, we see first in Scripture that a priest was anointed. A priest was anointed. You can turn with me to Exodus chapter 40 if you'd like. And it tells us the process by which they set up the tabernacle and got everything ready for operation, including getting the priests ready. 
The priests, along with all the other parts of the tabernacle, were to be properly anointed with oil, which means they would take some special oil, pour it over the head of the priest being set apart for service. And so you can look at Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 9. It says, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all of its furniture so that all of it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all of its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may be most holy. And you shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. And then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and you shall wash them with water and put on the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as a high priest. And you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you have anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout the generations. This anointing was a special blessing, and it is associated with all sorts of positive imagery in the Old Testament. Psalm 133, for example, talks about the unity among God's people as being as pleasant as the oil that dripped down Aaron's head and his beard onto his priestly robe. This anointing symbolized the giving of God's Spirit to set someone apart for a particular task or function. Prophets and kings were similarly anointed when they were consecrated for particular roles. Furthermore, Aaron being anointed with oil symbolized the pouring out of God's Spirit, which parallels the filling of the tabernacle with the glorious Spirit of God. Just like the tabernacle is permeated with God's presence and Spirit, so too does Aaron carry around God's Spirit with him, as symbolized by the anointing. And so understood in this way, Aaron himself is acting like a mini-tabernacle. A little picture of God's dwelling place among his people. A significant fact to which we will return later. This is important for us to notice that a priest's function flows out of his identity. That is, he isn't merely a priest because that happens to be his job, like he could have done a hundred other things. He is a priest by calling and by divine consecration. And therefore, he functions as a priest who serves God through his divinely appointed vocation. That's important. Second, we've seen that a priest is anointed, but secondly, a priest is properly attired. A priest is to be properly attired. Significant emphasis is given to the proper dress worn by a priest of God. Just like every other detail in the tabernacle, the priest's clothing is spelled out in painstaking detail. You can see that in Exodus 39. I won't read it all to you, but I'll point out a few significant highlights. The garments themselves are described as holy garments, H-O-L-Y. This isn't an ordinary set of overalls he threw on when he got to work. The priest was wearing ornate, beautiful, expensive and intentionally symbolic pieces of clothing that highlighted both his identity and his role. The priest would wear a turban made of fine linen, and it was stamped with gold on the front, and it said, Holy to Yahweh, reminding everyone that the whole priestly system was a gift of God. The ephod, or the linen torso garment, had shoulder pieces 
each holding an expensive onyx stone. And these two stones had engraved upon them the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Something we'll come back to later. But before any of this could even be put on, the man would first have to bathe himself according to God's prescribed methods. He would have to make a sacrifice to purify himself. He could not represent a pure God to a sinful people if he himself was defiled. Everything about him, inside and out, had to be properly adorned if he was to be an acceptable priest. Third, and related to the previous point, a priest represents God to man. A priest was to represent God to man. As God's ordained mediators or go-betweens, the priest would serve as God's representative to the nation of Israel. That's what's emphasized by the stamped gold plate, holy to Yahweh. Further, the priest would accept the sacrifices that the people of God would bring for themselves. Whenever an Israelite sinned, he would have to bring a particular sacrifice and offer it to God as atonement. didn't matter what they did, if they stole or they lied or they broke a vow or they got sinfully angry or whatever, they had to bring the proper sacrifice. And that could be a bird or some flower or a bull or a goat or a lamb. The law laid it out in painstaking detail. And when they brought that sacrifice, the priest would help them slaughter it, would catch some of the blood in a little bowl, and would sprinkle that blood on the altar. And thus the priest would be serving as God's representative, who would then accept the sacrifice being made by the penitent Israelite. And it's also worth noting that the priest also represented God in an instructional capacity. Priests were called upon and were authorized to give authoritative interpretations of the law. If you were a Jew and you had a question, or you were confused about how you should act, or what sacrifice you needed to make, or if your skin disease was leprous or not, you went to the priest. The priest would explain to you exactly what God's Word commanded you to do. And thus it's in this instructional capacity that a priest represents God to God's people. But he didn't just represent God to man, he also represented man before God. And that's the fourth point. A priest represents man before God. You probably noticed this earlier when I mentioned the name of the twelve tribes on the onyx stones, on the priestly garments. The priest literally carried the names of the people of God whenever he went about his priestly work. And on the most important day of the year, the Day of Atonement, which we read in Leviticus 16, is where the day where the priest would enter into the most holy part of the tabernacle. He would enter into God's most special place, bearing the names of God's people upon his shoulders. He was representing God's people and the access that they had to him, but only through the work of a mediator, only through the work of a priest. This representation is significant. For reasons you can likely see now, but we will make explicit very soon. Fifth and lastly about the Old Testament priests, we've seen that they've to be anointed, properly dressed, that they represent God, that they represent man. And lastly, the priest guards God's temple. A priest guards God's temple. You can see this if you go back all the way to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam's vocation from the beginning encompassed being a guarder a guardian, and a keeper of the garden. And that same language of guarding and keeping is used in several other places to describe the role of a priest. 
A priest is someone set apart, specifically tasked with guarding the tabernacle and later the temple, even through the use of force if necessary. Anyone who transgressed God's holy barriers or ignored God's holy law was supposed to be slain. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain and he found Israel worshiping the golden calf? It was the Levites, the priests, who followed Moses' orders and killed about 3,000 men by the sword. Exodus 32, 28. And what Moses says right after that verse is significant. It says, And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for service to the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow upon you a blessing on this day. Their service included priestly guarding of God's holy law and his holy space. You see the same language in Numbers chapter 1, verse 53, or Numbers 25, where Phineas took a spear to the Israelite man and his false Baal worship through his Midianite wife. We could go further, but let's move on to the second and much more encouraging point, and that is Christ is a priest. Our second major point is that Christ is a priest, and we can see that by examining the same categories that we saw from our survey of the Old Testament priests. And so first, like priests were anointed, Christ himself was also anointed. Christ was anointed. In fact, that's what Christ means. Christ comes from the Latinized word Christus, which means Messiah, which is the the Hebrew word for anointed one. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we aren't merely being polite as if we're saying his first and last name, like, we like you, Mr. Christ. No, we're saying a theological declaration. When we say Jesus is the Christ, we're confessing that this Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the one prophesied about in the Old Testament, which means that God has chosen and set Christ apart for a particular priestly role. He didn't just fumble into this role. He didn't stumble upon being the Messiah. He was sent and fitted for the task at hand. And we can see this this fitting in a very ceremonial way at his baptism. We see in the baptism of Jesus, God the Father speaking down from heaven, setting Christ apart as the true Son who brings delight to the Father, And we see the anointing ministry of the Holy Spirit. However, unlike the Old Testament priest that just got a little bit of oil to symbolize the Spirit's consecration, Jesus' humanity, his human nature is fully anointed with all of the gifts and the graces necessary for him to complete his priestly mission. In fact, if you step back and think about what's happening in Jesus' baptism, it is quite profound. The eternal Son of God, the Logos, from whom the Holy Spirit processes, along with from the Father, forever takes upon himself the fullness of human nature, which is then anointed with the same Spirit that proceeded from the divine Son. It's remarkable. It's amazing. And it's much too deep for me to keep going in tonight. Maybe another sermon. In summary, Christ is anointed, but not merely with oil with the fullness of the Holy Spirit himself, consecrating him, setting him apart, and empowering him to fulfill the priestly mission given to him by the Father. Second, like the Old Testament priest, Christ is properly attired. Christ is properly attired. However, unlike Old Testament priests, 
Our priest was not adorned with opulent clothing. He wasn't wearing dazzling attire. That's what the Jews were expecting. They wanted a priest king who would come in a blaze of glory and lead a military insurrection to free God's people. But that's not what God sent. And that's not the kind of priest we needed. God sent to us a priest that was nothing special to look at. He was a lowly priest. He was externally unremarkable. In fact, Isaiah 53 says that there was no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should even desire him. He had nothing on the outside to make him special. But what he did have is what makes him our perfect and lovely high priest. It's what's on the inside. He was dressed not with robes of fine linen, but with robes of righteousness, Scripture says. He didn't have a turban stamped with a gold nameplate signifying his divinity. Instead, he had a crown made of thorns, the very image of the curse. He didn't have a tunic with onyx stones carrying the names of God's people on his shoulders. Instead, he had the weight of a wooden cross upon his shoulders, bearing the full weight of all of his people's sins. He didn't have an impressive temple laden with gold and fine wood, but rather he himself was the temple and one not made with human hands. He wasn't consumed with ceremonial purity laws and gold wash basins in the temple, but rather he picked up the hand towel and the wash basin and he washed the feet of his disciples. He didn't have animals brought to him from the outside to be sacrificed. He himself was the sacrificial lamb of atonement. Christ's attire was the glorious adornment of humility and love, the adornment of His kingdom. Indeed, where the first will be last and the last will be first. And because He was willing to become the last, God has elevated Him to the position of first in the kingdom. Our Christ is adorned with glory because He was willing to be adorned as nothing. He's been given regal garments and seated at the right hand of the Father because he was first willing to be stripped of everything on the cross. That's our high priest. Third, like the Old Testament priest, Christ represents God to his people. Christ represents God to his people. We could take this in a bunch of different directions. You could take it in the direction of his prophetic office. Just like the Old Testament priests were charged with giving authoritative interpretations of Old Testament law, so too does Christ. Our great high priest gives us authoritative interpretations of God's law. How many times in the Gospels do you hear Jesus saying things like, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Christ is highlighted multiple times in the Gospels as one who speaks with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's because our high priest doesn't have to interpret the law as an outsider or even as a creature coming to the text. Christ interprets the law of God as the very author of the law. The divine Son, along with the Father, breathes out the very Holy Spirit that inspired the law of God. And therefore, he doesn't have to guess about the intention behind the text and its proper application. That's why Jesus can say things like John 14, 10. These words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Christ represents the fullness of God and thus the very wisdom of God. So we don't have to doubt the veracity or the profitability of Christ's teaching. When Christ speaks, it's God that's speaking to us. 
But it doesn't just stop there. He also represents God to us in a more personal way. He doesn't, he's not merely able to give us a more accurate representation of God's Word. He's able to give us a full representation of God Himself. The Old Testament priests were pictures. They were types of what God is like. They represented God in a true and accurate way, but not in fully intelligible ways. They were cloudy. There was murkiness to exactly what they were representing. But with the coming of Christ, we get the fullness of God represented to us in full color. No more shadows. That's why John can, or Jesus can say in John 14, 9, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's why Paul can say of Jesus in Colossians 1, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Nothing of God was lacking from Jesus. There's no part of God that was not revealed to us in the person of Christ. We don't have to wonder if the God that we seek to know is the God that we see in Jesus or the God that we will meet in heaven. He is the exact imprint of His nature, Scripture says. Then we can trust that Jesus is truly and accurately representing God to us. Fourth, just like the Old Testament priests, Christ also represents man before God. Christ represents man before God. As our divinely anointed mediator, Christ acts in our stead before God. Even though we were born in sin, and we sin every day, even though we could never gain access to God because of our corruption, even though we've earned for ourselves a sentence of death, praise be to God that Christ acts as our representative. And this representation is perhaps what we most often think about when we consider Christ as the great high priest. Let's think about some of the different ways in which Christ represents us. And these are, these are really sweet, so I hope you're paying attention. Most simply, He acts as our substitute. He dies in our place. He bears the curse for His people. That means Jesus died so you don't have to. But He also takes away the wrath of God against our sin. It's what the Bible calls propitiation. It means He assuages the holy anger of God for our sin. That means that as believers, when you suffer in this life, it's not because God is wrathful towards you. The wrath has been appeased by another. Any suffering that we face in this life is from the loving, tender, caring hands of our Savior and is working for our good. He is our propitiation. But He also represents us to God in our cleansing. That is, he, he bears our defilement, our filthiness, and He instead gives us purity. It's as if we were Israelites going to the temple again, and we've muddied ourselves. We're filthy. We're bloody. We are ceremonially unclean, unfit to even enter into the outside of the temple. And the priest, who should have told us to go away and to wash ourselves, tells us something else. He says, come here and let me wash you. Let me give you my own sparkling white linen robes. They've been made especially for you. 
And that's the cleansing that our high priest gives us. That's what Christ gives to us. It's really wonderful news if you have ever really felt dirty because of your sin. Christ is our purification. He also represents us as our advocate. We could say our intercessor. Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ has entered once for all into the heavenly holy of holies. He's appealing to God on our behalf. That means Christ is even now pleading the merit of His own priestly sacrifice on the cross so that you and I might remain forgiven and saved to the uttermost. We persevere in the faith today because Christ perseveres in His intercession. We remain holy, we remain justified, we remain in Christ because Christ remains a faithful high priest. And unlike all of the earthly priests who would get tired, who would wear out, who would eventually die, this high priest will never die because he's already conquered death. There's no possibility that his priestly work will ever fail. And so praise be to God that this Jesus has done on a cosmic scale that which was acted out on the Day of Atonement. Namely, and especially, He has torn down the curtain that separated us from God. He has entered into the holy place by means of His perfect blood, and He pleads that perfect blood on our behalf so that we might forever be cleansed of the guilt of our sins and be perfectly represented as a sinless people before a holy God. Fifth, final point about Christ. Just like the Old Testament priests guarded the temple, so too does Christ guard God's temple. I won't spend long here because we could go too far down the rabbit hole, but it's worth mentioning that Christ bears a sword like the Old Testament priests bore a sword. But unlike the physical swords of the Old Testament priest, Christ's sword is His Word in the hands of the Holy Spirit. This is really important, and people get this wrong in church today, and it causes all sorts of problems. But Christ's sword is His Word. He guards the purity of His new covenant temple, that's the church, and He guards it not with physical swords, but with the sword of the Spirit. He uses His means of grace to purify His people by faith. He grants them entrance into the church by baptism. He sustains them by faith in the ongoing means of grace in the Lord's Supper. He removes the weeds of unbelief by loving acts of discipline, all of which is regulated by His Word. We don't take unbelievers out back and stone them like they did in the Old Covenant. Rather, we understand that Christ's kingdom is is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. And Christ regulates the purity of His visible church according to His spiritual sword, not an earthly sword. Christ guards the purity of His temple just like a faithful priest should. And so we've seen so far, priests are anointed, they're properly attired, they represent God to man, and they represent men to God, and they guard the temple. And Christ does all these things perfectly. And so I'd like to land the last major point and look at us and try and apply some of these principles, specifically noting what happens when we come to faith. Scripture uses significant, theologically significant language in the New Testament to describe those that follow Christ. And hopefully this language will be even more weighty for us 
in light of what we've seen so far. The apostles speak of the new covenant as a nation of priests or a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And hopefully that language is triggering some of these thoughts in, in mind. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul would say that we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices in the book of Romans. And so the main point is this. When Christ saves us, he becomes our great high priest and then calls us into priestly service in his spiritual temple. And so let's break that priestly service down in the same categories we've used so far. So first, like Old Testament priests, believers are anointed. Believers are anointed. We are consecrated. We are set apart for our new calling. We outwardly are anointed in the waters of baptism, but that's even preceded by an inward anointing. Scripture says it's the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus chapter 3. The Spirit is given to us as a seal of our salvation and indwells every believer. He works to illumine the pages of Scripture, help us to grow in holiness, guides us in the path of righteousness, seals us for the day of redemption. This is all part of our divine consecration, our new calling. Second, like Old Testament priests, believers are properly attired. We are properly attired, but our adornment is not in gaudy gold or precious stones. In fact, the New Testament explicitly warns against being led astray by such things. Instead, we're called to be dressed like Christ, to be adorned with an inner beauty, an imperishable beauty of pure and holy lives. Our robes are not of linen, but of righteousness and of holiness. And significantly for us, the New Testament speaks of our righteousness, of our robes of holiness in two different ways. We have first been made holy, when we come to faith in Christ. That is a definitive final action. We are united to Christ. We have been robed in His righteousness. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You once were blind, but now you see. You once were dead, now you've been born again. But the New Testament also speaks of our holiness in terms of an ongoing process. We are made holy in Christ, and we are called to be holy, to grow in holiness. We have been born again and we're called to mature in this new life. And both of these things are crucial if we're to be faithful priests. If we forget that we are made holy in Christ, that we have definitively been robed in Christ's righteousness, then we will be tempted to look at, at our robes of unrighteousness and judge our own progress in the Christian life and be tempted towards despair because we see that we're not holy, we know we should be, or we'd be tempted to pride to think, yeah, I'm doing great, I'm nailing it. This holiness thing is a piece of cake. But if I forget the second aspect of my holiness, if all I do is just remind myself all the time that, oh, Jesus is my holiness, whatever, it doesn't matter whatever else happens, Jesus has made me holy, then we'll mess up on the other side of the road. We'll be tempted to coast in the Christian life to let off the accelerator, to think that, well, I've done, I've come to Christ, that's all I need to do. Instead, we need to remember that Christ has adorned us with righteous priestly robes and I need to strive for holiness. We have been anointed and we need to act like it. 
Third, just like priests, believers represent God to man. We represent God to man. And this is a helpful reality for us to remember. We have been saved, but we should not merely sit contented in our new relationship with God. We have been commissioned. We have been brought into a divine vocation to speak to others about Christ. That's what the Great Commission is in Matthew 28. The apostles in the church were commissioned to go out into all the world and tell people about Jesus. Have you ever viewed that text in a priestly way? Every unbeliever that we meet is a potential future priest. He just needs the anointing of the Holy Spirit and they too could come serve alongside us in the spiritual temple of God. Related to this evangelistic effort, we can also see that believers represent or can represent man before God. Believers can represent man before God. Because we know that God has to work in the hearts of anyone before they would believe, we ought to be humbly pleading with God on behalf of the lost people around us. We should be like our great high priest who intercedes for us, and we too should be interceding for others in a priestly way, praying that God would open their eyes, praying that we'd have opportunity to speak with them of spiritual things, praying that we'd have the awareness and the boldness to take advantage of those opportunities when they arise, praying for more workers in this evangelistic priesthood because there's so many that need to hear the truth of God. Lastly, like the Old Testament priests and like Christ, believers are to guard God's temple. Believers are to serve in a priestly way by guarding God's temple. And we can do this. We can guard the new covenant temple by first praying. We should regularly and fervently pray for the purity of our church. We should pray that we would be set apart from the world. That we would not be tempted to fall down for the muck of this world's filth. But not only pray, we need to work. We need to actively work to protect the purity of our church. And we can do this by soberly maintaining our own purity. We need to be on guard against any sin that bubbles up within us and cut it off early. But we can also help others guard their purity by encouraging them with the Word of God. Loving them well. And such is a wonderfully priestly role of New Covenant Fellowship where we speak God's word of purification to one another. Thirdly and lastly, we engage in our priestly guarding of our temple when we obey the Bible's commands to maintain the purity of the congregation. We've seen in our study of 1 Corinthians that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to cast out the unrepentant sinner before he infects the rest of the congregation. Churches are called to be priestly and work for guarding the temple by casting out anyone who remains in unrepentant sin. Thus, we've seen that just like the Old Testament priests and like Christ, we are called to priestly service as well. Now, I've said a lot tonight, but I want to close with this. We all need help and forgiveness. Each of us falls short of God's standard. None of us are perfectly faithful in our priestly service. We are impure in our motives. We are lazy in our duties, selfish in our desires. But we're not left without hope because we serve under the perfect ministry of another priest, a great and perfect high priest. And because of his priestly work, all of our feeble works are acceptable, yea, even delightful 
to our Heavenly Father. I hope that if you have not yet come to Christ by faith, that you will consider the priestly work of Christ that has been explained tonight. See that His work is sufficient to save and especially see His heart of love that compels Him to serve in such a costly office. He stands ready, willing to receive and to forgive and to wash. This is our great high priest. Because if you do not, he will return and he will guard his cosmic temple. He will cast out unbelievers by the power of the sword and he will purify the new heavens and the new earth by casting all unbelievers into hell forever. Don't let that be your fate. Trust in him And you too can have his forgiveness and his robes of righteousness wrapped around you forever. Now before we depart tonight, we get to partake of the new covenant's priestly meal, the Lord's Supper. All who have been anointed through baptism into Christ's priestly service are welcome to join us at the table. If you're marked by the fruit of priestly service seen in Acts chapter 2, as devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to join us. Come, be refreshed by our great high priest's meal of fellowship with you. But if you have not yet come to faith, or if you're out of fellowship with Christ's bride, then let the plates pass. Be reconciled to Christ, and then join us at the table. I will pray, and then our table servants will come. Father in heaven, we ask that you would consecrate these elements, that you would set them apart for a spiritual service, that you would nourish us all by faith tonight. Help us to see our great high priest and to cherish his work on our behalf, to know that his blood is the blood by which we have been made clean, and his body being broken is the reason that we have access to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.